This week, how to think like a tuba. I talk about music composition strategy, storytelling, and so much more with the marvelous Raul Vega in a wide-ranging conversation that will make you enlightened and delighted. All that's coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey friends, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. So, first, some news. We are shifting gears here at Radio Drama Revival and moving to a seasons system. How it has worked for the previous 13 years is that we would basically make podcasts nonstop until we burned out or maybe decide to take a two-week break for a holiday, but now we're formally shifting to a new system where we aren't running ourselves ragged all the damn time. This plan and other changes to the show have been in the works for months. I promise this has nothing to do with the pandemic, although taking care of ourselves has taken on a new, more urgent dimension of late. But we are going to be taking a nice long break, and then we'll be back in the summertime. That doesn't mean the production will stop. Behind the scenes, we'll be continuing to conduct interviews and build up a backlog of new shows, but there won't be new podcast episodes for the end of spring and the beginning of the summer of 2020. But... If you are a Patreon subscriber, check in with us there throughout the spring and summer because we will be continuing to release hot content all year round. So stick around for that because we will have some outrageously goofy stuff planned for y'all. This is a distributed working group. Ever since we graduated from the team that consisted of only Fred, our production team, which is distributed across two countries and seven U.S. states, is used to remote work conditions. Seeing my teammates in our weekly production meetings is one of the bright spots of my week, and we meet on Mondays at 8 p.m., so we are prepared to face this summer head-on. Although first, all of us will be taking a nap. I shall take a nap, and then a bath. Now, to our interview with Raul Vega, the creator and composer of Rose Drive. It helps if you've listened to all of Rose Drive before you hear this interview, but if you're putting it off for less stressful days to come, believe me when I say you want to hear this conversation regardless. Spoilers be damned. He's such a smart man, so good at his craft, and with such a solid grasp on story and people. This is Raoul's first ever written project as an adult, and hearing that almost made me angry with envy. Except it's hard to stay angry at this guy. I interviewed him a few weeks ago, when we really didn't have a grasp of the shape of the pandemic, and I was so relieved to be able to talk about absolutely anything else with Raul for like 90 minutes. So was he, and so, I think, will you. I've said before that one of my favorite things to do is ask people questions about craft, especially if it's something I don't know a ton about. You're into ceramics, knitting, woodblock prints? Awesome, I want to ask you about all of that. Craft is transformative. You're taking one thing and transmuting it into another thing. Clay becomes a cup, wool becomes a hat, inked blocks become a composition. I gravitate towards writers, actors, designers, and directors because that's what I know. Thoughts become words, words become performances, performances cohere into a finished dramatic work. Well, sit back and enjoy this conversation about many things. The origins of the show, coming to terms with the bigotries of your hometown, and a little bit of creator self-insertion. But all of it is threaded through with one common idea about craft. Music. All right, take it away, Raul, and past me. Raul, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. It's such a pleasure to have you. Yeah, it's lovely chatting with you, David. Thanks for inviting me. So let's get started. Um, on an episode of the Andrew Deitch podcast, Raul, you said that the origins of Rose Drive began out of a conversation with your friend Aaron, who plays Marcus in the show. And he's an actor who wanted more roles. You're a composer who wanted to score a film. Tell me more about that conversation. Oh, man. That was a few years ago at this point. Well, we were basically, um, <laughs> we were hanging out at Flame Broiler, which is, you know, like this uh, teriyaki chicken and steak um, chain out here in sunny Los Angeles, California. Um, and we were sitting here and, and I work professionally in film music um, as a digital instrument builder. And, and Aaron was getting into acting and, you know, he was trying to get more gigs 
um, obviously acting in, in films and theatrical stuff. And I was still hoping to advance my career as a composer. And uh, this particular time, I think it was January of 2016 or something, we were just so down in the dumps because like every artist in Los Angeles, we were just complaining that nobody else was making our dreams come true for us. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm sitting there just saying, man, I don't have any projects to score. And Aaron was like, you know, my manager hasn't been sending me out to audition anything. And you were just feeling, you know, we kind of been here for a couple of years and kind of hitting that wave of, man, I, I don't know, is this, is this still worth it? Should we still keep doing this if we're not getting these opportunities? Until we finally just kind of stopped and looked at each other and we said, well, why don't we make our own thing? You know, uh, and we kind of were like, wow, can we do that? We can actually do something without waiting for somebody else to give us permission. Because that's kind of how this town works a lot of the times is you're, you're always right. fighting to get that opportunity, whether it's an acting gig or directing or writing or scoring. You're kind of always... Um, hustling and searching and, and, and waiting for somebody else to have already started a vehicle for you to jump into. And, um, you know, we were just talking about it. He's like, well, what do you know about film? I was like, well, I don't know anything about the directing aspect of it, but I know audio. I was like, what about you? He's like, well, you know, I've never done voice acting before, but it's, it's, I act and I use my voice. And I said, all right, well, why don't we just do some audio stuff, some audio storytelling and we'll both, <laughs> we'll both make it fun and we'll be terrible at it and we'll embarrass ourselves with how bad it is and um, just no pressure and have fun. So we said, okay. And that's pretty much how it started. The whole thing started because Aaron wanted to act and I wanted to write music for something. And, um, you know, this this uh, audio drama <laughs> uh, uh, endeavor started from, from kind of that. And then also a friend of mine had recently introduced me to podcasts. And of course, I was just searching 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 and back then there weren't nearly as many uh, uh audio dramas as there are now and um you know i i just said okay well why don't we start doing some research listen to what's out there what different people are doing and and then just kind of built off of off of that and lo and behold i ended up writing the whole series and um <laughs> you know I, I tried getting some of my writer friends to start writing on it and and i guess i was just coming up with too many specific ideas and they were like bro you got to do this yourself <laughs> i said all right I, I guess so i mean i'm already i already don't know what the hell i'm doing and all these other aspects i might as well not know this and just have fun at it so yeah it, it, it literally all started with us with um with teriyaki bowls complaining that we don't have any other gigs going on until we finally we said screw it let's just make our own <laughs> that's really funny yeah. and everything that you did for the first season was all volunteer labor too right that's correct everything every um man every bit that we put out um you know all my actors who most of them were my were a lot of my friends some family members some friends from high school um you know i i think what's really kind of interesting about that is uh you know we we had no budget on this and 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 the caliber of actors that i was able to to get with no with no budget is i mean it's it was a steal it's sinful um they are so gifted <laughs> and so talented and 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 um i think what's the most exciting part about that is they just they just want to work and they want to create and they want to play and there's a curiosity about them and that's something that's very important to me in any aspect of any uh artistry or creative um, thing that you're doing together, whether separately or as a group, is that there's got to be a curiosity about it. And we all kind of knew, we're like, hey, we, we have no idea what this is going to turn into. We just want to do this because this is going to be fun. And, um, you know, for me, it was also trying to build my portfolio outside of my, my studio work. Um, you know, something that I could for better or worse say, whether it succeeds or fails, this is all mine. And um, everybody just was just excited to play and nobody had really you know, even thought about about audio drama or podcasting, really. But when you come out to L.A., most actors obviously want to be in movies or television shows. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, uh, you know, when I mentioned, hey, do you want to do like a voiceover thing? It's an audio storytelling. They're like, I don't know what that is, but that sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so somehow I was able to dupe all of these lovely people into joining in on this crazy adventure that I was just making up second by second and said you guys want to play like in the very in the very least i'll be able to have you know a, a hopefully professional sounding audio reel for you guys and you know we can we can uh, and also you know in in trade helping people with that and helping them with auditions and editing and 
splicing together little like voice samples and auto audio editing. And you're primarily a pianist, right? That's correct. I uh, I started on piano when I was like 17, 16, 17. I came into music pretty late, uh, knowing I wanted to be a composer. And uh, once I got to college and I did music school and, you know, um, basically had a double major between piano and composition and then finally just focused on composition. And uh, that's that's kind of where my heart is. So how does how does your familiarity with piano help or hinder your composition work? So God, that's a really oh wow, that's an amazing question. Nobody ever asked that, and it's a really important question to ask. And I'm going to tell you a little story. Um, so, playing piano and having to learn how to read music, and learn form and learn technique, and really slow down through classical training was a struggle for me because the first couple of years it was just. I was just playing my own stuff, writing my own tunes, even of the classical works that I was I was trying to play. I was doing my own interpretations of it in a way mm-hmm. I was kind of arranging because it, it was the way that I could cope with the fact that I didn't know how to read music very well. <laughs> so I was like, okay, mm-hmm. well, let me just find a way to, to kind of play this in the way that makes sense to me. And then when I had my official, my formal training, I had to go way back to baby steps, um, which is really important. I'm really glad I did. Once I started getting into piano, uh, I'm sorry, to writing music, most of the time I was writing stuff for piano. So everything felt pianistic and, and it was great and it worked. But when you're writing for other instruments, if you're writing at the piano for other instruments without considering how they function, not only for the musician and the, the artist that's playing it, but just the overall texture and personality of a violin versus a tuba versus you know, a bass drum versus a bassoon, if you're not taking into consideration with that, it's really not going to sound right because there's certain registers in in every instrument that are stronger and weaker. Um, and, and, and also, it's much easier for me to do four octave jumps on a piano <laughs> than it would be on sure. another instrument. Uh, so how do you think like a tuba? Like, what do, you, what, what do you have to do to put yourself in the headspace of different kinds of musicianship? So a lot of it is score study, right? It's looking at kind of what the greats have done, uh, you know, with, with uh, Schubert and, and Haydn and Beethoven and, and you know, all the, all the great, great Brahms, the great masters of our time. Um, well, earlier, not our time, because I'm not that old, but... <laughs> Sure. Um, uh, so, so where's uh, your Dorian Gray portrait if yeah. you were around for the romantics? <laughs> Seriously, God. Oh, mirrors all over my house. Um, so, so with uh, and yet you appear in none of them. What gives? Yeah. Right? I have. I, I. I. I refuse to reveal certain certain answers, David. That's fair. Um, I think what's really good is when you're going to a music school or you have friends that are musicians. You have access to those performers and players. You can really sit down and talk to them and and really figure out how their instrument works from the performer standpoint um, what what is technically easier passages to play what are certain articulations that are actually um, usable um, and useful versus ones that aren't so a lot of its conversation a lot of its listening um, obviously when you're actually writing the score you want to make sure you're writing in the uh, uh, right, range for them um, some of them are are written in different keys and you have to compensate for that uh, but it's just really just kind of really delving into that but but when you're writing the music like for, for me this is and I will I will say this because this is one of my music professors my uh, one of my composition instructors because we had weekly composition um, practices or or meetings where we would present our work to a one-on-one, uh, uh, professor for an hour, talk about the music, either play the mini track or show the score or play it for them. And they would go back and give us feedback on structure and analyze and whatever. Um, my, my, uh, second theory teacher, composition teacher at Cal State Long Beach. And I was open to him. I was telling him, I was like, you know, I feel like I'm struggling here because, I feel like everything that I'm writing still sounds like it was written on a piano. And he said, well, are you writing at the piano? And I said, yes. And he said, well, there's your problem, my friend. (laughs) And he said, and he said, look at it this way. He's like, I know you're writing at the piano, which is great because you have the full range of every instrument that's ever been created and some. He's like, but 
if you always let your fingers do the walking, they're always going to walk the same way. I said, okay, that's really interesting. So what I would do is I would start improvising a passage or an idea to come up with an, with an idea of a melody or a tune because my music's always pretty tonal. I, I got into more avant-garde as I was experimenting stuff. But I, So I started writing, um, writing a piece that was more narrative-driven. And, and, and in order for me to really get out of my comfort zone of writing at the piano, because what I was saying is I tend to write very tonal. So I love melodies. I love kind of beautiful, cheesy, uh, uh, harmonic stuff that we hear in film music and more contemporary music. Sure. Um, and, 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 you know, I really wanted to push myself to get outside of that realm and think, okay, what if I were to write something for an instrument that I know literally nothing about? Even more instruments that don't have a tonal center, don't really have a defined pitch. So I said, okay, what if I wrote a percussive piece, a percussive ensemble for four percussionists with tam-tam um, and, and with bass drums and snares and, you know, a, a handful of different non-pitched instruments. Let me just play with it. Um, and I did, and it was, it, was pro- it was probably one of my favorite pieces I've ever written. And the whole narrative behind it, it was in four parts. It was like a 10-minute piece, and it was about waking up. Um, and the four sections were all those, like, you know, when you're starting to wake up and you're trying to get your bearings, you're kind of half in the world of sleep, half in the world of the living world. And then you're finally, you know, then the next movement is you're here, you're awake, but you're still kind of like out of it. You're like still trying to get your bearings, but things are a little bit more cohesive. The third movement is, okay, now you're doing your daily routine, you're brushing your teeth, you're taking a shower, you're feeding your cat, you're walking your dog. And the final movement is, oh shit, I'm late for work. I got to get going. (laughs) So it just, in 10 minutes, I had to think about these different sections and not only what what these things feel like as a person, but how do we translate that to music? So without any melody or any real real motif that was going on so the first movement as we're waking up because you're kind of in between worlds you know how when you're waking up the world is really quiet and also really loud at the same time some like small sounds are exaggerated to to insanity so that's kind of what i did for the first movement as i had my four percussionists i wrote this very weird kind of avant-garde intro where they were all playing different meters different rhythms different dynamics not really communicating with one another and as the piece progresses they get they get more and more in touch with each other and more kind of in this box routine as we're doing our third movement routine and they're playing together and then when things start going crazy they just go bananas and they're just playing loud and (laughs) fast and doing all these crazy things and 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 that was yeah, that was a, that was my first time I think I ever really started to think about music in a way that went beyond the notes. And um really Can, I? can yeah, you sure. send can you send me that piece? I would love to hear it. Oh, I'd love to. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> cool. <laughs> um let's transition by way of continuing to talk about music. I want to sure. transition this back into Rose Drive questions. Sure. Um because you were on, when you were on Sarah Ray Warner's Coffee Break podcast, you told her that you're a composer above all else, right? This is no Correct. surprise to anyone listening. Hmm. Um, but that your writing process begins with designing themes, ambient tracks, and motifs for individual characters. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm curious, I'd like you to tell us about the process you went through for composing Marcus, Claire, Forrest, and other characters from the show. Sure. Um, well... As I already openly admitted, maybe I didn't get as specific, but uh, I, I had never written anything before as far as story or words. And I've told I told this little little thing. Well, the only thing I ever recall writing was in third grade. I wrote a story about an alien coming into my house and stealing my underpants. And that's mm-hmm. that's my <laughs> that is my original story. And I'm still looking for those damn tidy whities but. Alas, they're probably gone, lost in the void forever. Um, so, they're so when probably I was... the emperor of some extra like galactic <laughs> civilization now. They all like worship your underpants. We can only hope. We can only hope, David. Um, <laughs> so, so when it when it came to writing music for this, or I'm sorry, writing the actual story, I was getting all of my ideas from listening to music, mostly film scores, of course, because that's that's my world. Um, and I, I think some of the best composers. 
uh, for film or contemporary music or concert music, or whatever, they are just some of the best storytellers you will ever hear. And every p- bit of music that they write has a story in it. That, those are the best scores to me, um, are the ones that where you can listen to a cue, uh, a piece of music. That's what we call it in our terms in film music. Every bit of music that's written is called a cue. All the cues together make up the score. Uh, gotcha. So when I'm listening to a cue to an individual track or a suite, right, which is like a 10, 10, 12 minute long piece of music that has several themes. Hans writes a lot of suites where it's, you know, he's getting his ideas for, you know, uh, Man of Steel or Lone Ranger. He'll write a long bit of music that has several different ideas and themes to it that we'll use to then kind of break apart and pull from whatever. Um, there's always a story in it and you can you you almost don't even need to see the picture in a way to understand what the whole tone is so for me when i was writing these characters i had i was writing down their biographies their backgrounds very extensively you know like what their favorite colors were when they were four years old and why it changed from blue to pink on tuesdays and then on thursdays they went back to red you know like really excessive stuff that nobody's ever gonna know or read just so i can kind of have an understanding of who these characters are but I knew tone-wise, musically, that was what was really going to help me get those ideas out. So I had an individual playlist for every single one of my characters that was a mixture of pop music and 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 film music and all these other things. I, I know, I'm pretty sure Lauren Shippen does something similar. I know she has. I know music's very, very important to her when she's writing yeah. her stuff as well. Will does it too, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Will, Will does. Um, uh, so... For for me, it was really just kind of coming up with if this character, Forrest or Marcus or Claire or Greg, if they were music, who what would they sound like? You know, and that gave me insight into their personality, how they live their daily lives, and um, you know, uh, the structure of it all as well. Kind of kind of played into you know, Greg. While he doesn't technically have a theme, you do hear so much of that ambient kind of uh, uh, new agey soft background <laughs> chill music with him because that's that's his vibe right um and uh you know with marcus we have a lot of these kind of l- low dark textures and and this you know mind washing uh synths that i have i have a lot of like background child's choir voice chattering kind of coming in and out which is supposed to be representing a little bit of how the memory of kayla still haunts him to this day you know um um throwing in all of these different kind of colors to where it was less of a very defined you know motif of a theme that you hear like on a piano or a melody and more textural for him because that's kind of how he is it's it's dark it's mysterious but it's also a little um kind of all over the place there's a lot of stuff happening because there's a lot of stuff happening inside of his mind and then for claire you get a lot more tender it's a little bit more together Mm -hmm. it's 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 kind of a, a a lovely sadness i mean her theme really kind of comes in um several episodes into it when she's visiting Kayla's grave and you kind of hear this this longing piano line that we then for the finale found a way to turn it into kind of a, a, a little bit more of a hero's theme and bring it in every time that we have kind of an emotional moment with her um so yeah it it it, it really all stems from from music I mean I'm tell I, I am telling the story through dialogue and with my actors and sound design but it really all comes down to the music it's so important for me it's the only way I know how to write, really, is through music. Do you compose for locations, too? Do you make location themes the the same way to develop a, a setting as you do for characters? Sure. So probably the, the strongest theme that I have, if you, you'll, you hear it in the trailer, you hear it at the end of episode two, which is kind of the Rose Drive theme. It's kind of got this, it starts <laughs> off with this kind of like espionage you know, like... Um, this this espionage uh, little tune that da, 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 and we start building with these percussive elements and 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 all that. So that's kind of the Rose Drive theme that um, you know I, I wanted to have the overall tone of Southampton, I guess, through the lens of Marcus. Um, and so as as far as the rest of the environments go, um, not as as much. There's 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 a lot of tones that it, that all kind of go back to that. So so I guess Southampton kind of has two themes because it has the it has that the Marcus Marcus's viewpoint of it, and then in one of the flashback episodes, 
it's very like kind of quaint and lovely, like a lovely morning on a Sunday. And it's very suburbia. It's when we go back in time and Marcus is waking up and he's having breakfast with his parents and hangs out with Claire. It's very sweet and family oriented. Um, and, and again, it was it was kind of to bring up the illusion, you know, like the 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 representation of what life used to be like and just how people see the suburbs and all that other stuff. Um, and then we also yeah. kind of have this this detectives-ish theme, which is kind of a blend of both where it's, you know, it's in the first episode when he's driving around kind of explaining everything that he's seeing um, um, around. It's it's this this little piano line that's like boo, 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 boo. And it just kind of repeats over and over. And, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted that to be like, you know, the, 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 uh, inquisitive, like, I don't really trust anything here anymore type of thing. And you hear it a couple of times when he's doing his quote unquote investigations. Um, but but yeah, I mean, the 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 majority of the score for the first chunk because the music was very different for the finale. I actually was able to bring in some of my composers from the studio to help out, and they, man, they you want to talk about composers? Those are real composers. Um, <laughs> they they oh, stop it. They they did some really phenomenal stuff, um, especially Fabio Marx, who who scored the entire finale and all you know the the last three parts of the series uh, of the first season which is over two hours worth of audio and you know over an hour worth yeah. of music he did all of that in about a month month and a half in between oh you know he had just finished you know working on rocket man and then he was jumping on uh with matt margison i think he, he was his like assistant on that and then he was doing stuff for blumhouse and other things and he said yeah i have a couple of weeks i can help out with this and he just he went to town on it. He really kind of pushed it in a way that I, I just don't quite have the skill set for. But what was fun was I was able to give him my thematic material from season one. I said, hey, these are three strong cues that I've written that have meaning to the story. I want to give these to you and kind of tell you what the story is behind every single one of these cues. And then if you can find a way to incorporate them and develop them into the finale, that'd be great. And he did an amazing job with it. So that Rose Drive theme, you hear it quite a bit in the finale um, so much. And as just Fabio taking this idea that I had and making it so much more interesting and making it fit within whatever was happening in the environment. So sometimes it's a little bit more tender. Sometimes it's scarier. Um, sometimes it's really, really intense. Um, but that's kind of the beauty of composers, right? As you can take, they, they're so good at taking one idea and just exhausting it from beginning to end and stretching it every which way possible um, to where you can still hear it. You can still feel it, but it's different. Um, yeah. When when you were recounting the Rose Drive theme to me just a couple of minutes ago, it made me realize there's a question I've always wanted to ask a composer and I've never gotten the chance to ask before now, which okay. is you're, you know, driving on the five and uh -huh. <laughs> you get an idea for a bit mm -hmm. uh, and you're, you know, your hands are on the steering wheel. You have no way to, you, there's no piano around. How, how much of your phone is... Like, how much of your phone's memory card is just voice memos of you going, ba, 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 like, if I were a composer, I would just be doing that shit all day long. Is that, is that how, yeah. Sometimes, here's the thing. I have what we like to call a composer's voice, because composers are notorious for having terrible voices. <laughs> Most of us, at least. Most of us. That's the thing. It is like bad handwriting, right? You write like a genius note down, and then four hours later, you're like, what the fuck am I Yeah, and people are like, I have no, I can't Buy even read it. kiwi salad? What is yeah. kiwi salad? <laughs> oh, I don't know, but that sounds really good. Um, yeah. Yeah, so sometimes it's sometimes it's voice notes. Sometimes, I mean, really, this, and this, ugh, God, this is, I must be really entertaining to watch, because when I'm driving and I have it stuck in my head, I'm literally just... Uh, humming it over and over and over and over and over and over until I can get somewhere that I can actually play it. And fortunately, oh, I so have, you have a, to store it in your, yes, in your short term memory. Got it. Right. And you know, the unfortunate thing is, is it's not always going to stay there, but hopefully if it would, if it made that much of an impact, it'll find its way back into your mind at some point, because a lot of the times the ideas are, um, 
they kind of they kind of stick with you longer than sometimes you even want them to and it just won't get out of your head until you finally write it down or jot the idea down um so so yeah so for me it's not actually writing physical notes on manuscript paper it is either recording in the voice or just praying to whatever deity it is you believe in that you end up somewhere where you have a keyboard and you can play it out um and and fortunately i have a home studio and then i have the studio um, at Hans's place, which both have keyboards, and those are pretty much the two main places you're ever going to find me. So I usually have access to kind of play around with it and like have something that I can write down. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I'm driving, yeah, there's really not anything you can do except for turn off whatever music is playing, just kind of zone out the rest of the world as best you can without being dangerous. Um, and, um, you know, <laughs> and just hope hope that the idea doesn't leave doesn't leave your mind it's easier now because when you have at least for me when i have a reason to write like say for rose drive or for a project it i usually am constantly thinking about it so uh the the idea is going to find its way one way or another and even so david even when i come home and write i'll start writing that tune or that melody or that theme and then when i start adding more stuff to it it completely changes I mean, it just does. It's just, sure. it's, I, I'm, I'm not that skilled where I can say, oh, this is exactly what I had in my mind and I'm going to translate it to the, to, to, to logic or Cubase or Pro Tools and it's going to work and it's going to sound exactly how it did in my head. I mean, 99.9% of the time it doesn't. And it usually ends up becoming more interesting because I end up allowing other ideas to kind of feed into it. So I'm going to, let's take a little uh, right hand turn and and move away from music writing and move into the the script writing. Sure. Um, Marcus is a really interesting protagonist to me because he's very awkward and unsociable to the point of just openly being unpleasant. You know, he's single-minded. <laughs> he sees people as instrumental in his quest to track down Forrest, but he doesn't really seem to have much use for them otherwise. Talk to me about this character. Why did you want to write him this way? So... <sighs> It's it's so funny because I know, uh, you know, they say, write what you know, and Marcus could not be more different from who I am. You know, I think all the right, other he characters... seems so different from you. Yeah. Um, and But that's that's kind of what was a lot of fun about it because all the other characters, whether it's whether it's it's uh, Alina or Cameron or Alec or Ezra, anybody, uh-huh. mo- most... Hey, I have a question for you about Alec. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> most of them truly... I mean, I identify with very strong notions of who they are, especially Alec, and we'll definitely get into him uh, because he's he's basically yeah, yeah. he's basically me in a lot of ways, <laughs> or or who I wish who at uh-huh. one point in my life I saw myself being. Um, uh, so naturally, he's the coolest kid. No, <laughs> um, as far as Marcus goes, well? <laughs> as far as Marcus goes, um, so I'm, I'm just gonna be kind of open about this. I, I, I was fortunate when I was younger all through pretty much most of college and early to mid 20s where I hadn't experienced much loss and death in people that I knew and that I love. And, you know, I, I come from a huge, huge family uh, of blood relatives, extended relatives, you know, just I've we've always I've always been surrounded by a lot of people, a lot of love and all age ranges. I was, you know, even in my immediate family, there's myself my sister my parents and i am the youngest but all my cousins were just popping kids out left and right so like i was never the youngest person there was always somebody several years younger several years older um and you know come from a huge family a lot of friends which is great um between 2016 and to the 2019 uh, a lot of people in my life had passed away um and and it was very just obviously not easy to deal with but especially as an adult no. you just kind of grow up yeah. thinking like oh man when you're a kid oh these everybody's going to be around forever and nothing bad is going to happen it's going to be great because we have these oh, parties so and we see people oh no i appreciate that but it, it it i actually found a way to to healthily in a healthy way put it into into my art and and a lot of the storyline between marcus and claire um was kind of built around that i mean on the forefront of course him losing his sister and 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 him and Paige, or, or sorry, uh, he and Claire, uh, Paige Herschel, who plays Claire, uh, they they cope with it in different ways, but they're still dealing with a similar loss. And so when I was kind of building out Marcus, I kind of started thinking of him when I was kind of in my darkest 
uh, phase of, of all this loss and just kind of that's it's definitely not how I I didn't shut down quite in the same way that Marcus has where he excludes the world from him from being near him and even has to be so far away from the town um, because he just can't deal with any of this and, and you know I, I also don't think he quite realizes until Claire points out to him you know he's he really is looking at this as a solo journey this is my own thing I'm the one who lost my sister I'm in so much pain and you can't blame him for it. you can't help but empathize with him but also he shut out the rest of the world and his his way of coping with it especially at a young age was just to leave and if I leave it's you know I'm already stuck with this on loop on memory everywhere I go being here is so much harder um and and so when it comes to people in town you know he's he's, he's never really been somebody even in you know the high school days that's why nobody like people kind of remember him they remember him but everybody he talks to you know um he kind of has a clean slate in a weird way because he had there's no history with any of them um, other than just being a former classmate, the only person he has strong history with is Claire, as we find out about that much later on. Um, so, you know, for, for writing him, I think I just wanted to explore a headspace that is kind of foreign to me. Um, because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a pretty generally an optimistic person and I'm, I adapt pretty easily and, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I do accept that this world is has a lot of good and a lot of bad that happens in it, but I always try to try to triumph over it and, and try to keep things positive in a very respectful way. Um, and, uh, you know, even during my dark times, dealing with all that loss, um, having good people and friends and and just healthy outlets, whether it's exercise or reading a book or creating, uh, was a way for me to kind of like get out of it. And honestly, kind of writing this story from that helped with that. Um, and also trying to understand his character of somebody. Cause you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. And, and, and Aaron knows this too. And Aaron brought, oh my God, he, I mean, he is, he not in real life because Aaron's a really happy, bubbly, fun, loving, spirited guy. But being able to go into that dark headspace was really interesting for him as well. Um, and, and we kind of were just talking about it. Like, you know, we didn't want to create a character that was this, flawless superhero everybody loves you type of guy you know he's 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 it's really hard to connect with him on a lot of levels and the ways that you really do connect with him more is in his his inner thoughts because you can't help but when you're sitting there you know and, and we've all known this i mean i'm i'm probably the least awkward person you'll ever meet but there have been times where i've been interactions with people where i can't help but feed off of how uncomfortable they are and then i'm like oh my god i i can't i feel so uncomfortable i don't i don't know how to help this situation and that's kind of marcus's right. comfort zone right it's just that's just <laughs> that's that's just who he is you know and and you know that's he's just a place he operates from it's just a place that he operates from um i i do want to ask about alec Sure. Uh, because and it's it's nice to have this confirmed because I had kind of this running this running joke as I was listening to Rose Drive. I was like, oh, this is this is a fun little self insert character, <laughs> you know, this lovable, friendly, competent composer and sound designer with a production company called Phantom Ape. Um, you know, and I, I found I found an old Bandcamp page for Phantom Ape, and I found Dispensary, aka Spencer Sharp, uh-huh, uh-huh. real rapper with Phantom Ape, your yep. production company. Mm-hmm. Someone named. Koba Vega used to produce him. Can you tell me? Can you tell me about Koba? Can you tell me about that alter ego and the overlap between your life and Alex's life? Sure. So, um, in addition to film music, uh, hip hop is something I grew up with. I mean, it's those are those are my two genres I listened to in a weird way. It was always it was Hans Zimmer and Danny Elfman, and then Dr. Dre and Bone Thugs and Harmony. That's what was always oh, blaring that makes in my so headphones. much sense if you're a samples musician, right? right? I guess it does. Yeah, because in hip hop, I mean, it's a different type of sampling, but it's still a sampling. It's all kind of coming together, isn't it? Um, well, so <clears throat> Spencer Sharp, who who plays Dispensary in in Rose Drive and also that's that's his that's his uh rapper alias although I think by now he may have changed a little bit he may be just going by his real name now but regardless we used to um when he moved into the house because he's one of my roommates he's a director he's an editor very very gifted artist so wait so real quick sure you Aaron and Spencer all live in a house together correct yeah so it's a very artistic house yeah no of course um and 
what we when Spencer moved in a few years ago, uh, we started producing a lot of music together, and he would rap, and I would make I would make the beats, and obviously try to make a more hip hop or uh, film music inspired. Um, and for a while, um, when Periscope was really big, we jumped on it, and we had a freestyle show where. I would basically film him. I'd play these beats that I mashed up together. Some of them were mine. A lot of them were just like instrumentals from Kendrick Lamar or Snoop Dogg or whatever. And um, we would play them and we would live stream and people would type in words and I'd shout them at him and Spencer would start freestyling off of them. And we had a little fan base. Yeah, it was super fun. Um, Anyway, so that's what Phantom Ape originally was. It was this hip-hop duo where we would just do these goofy things and these videos and beats and and music and, you know, and then things, you know, things changed. We got super busy with our own work stuff and relationships and girlfriends and all that other stuff. And it kind of like mellowed out a little bit. Um, and it wasn't until when I decided when I was doing Rose Draft, I was like, well, what if, what if we made this more into a podcasting production studio? So that's what I ended up doing. And when I was writing Alex, Alex scene, and I'll get, I'll get into Alex character. Uh, but the opening of a scene where he's with dispensary seven and Koba, who's in the room with him as dispensary's uh-huh. manager, this was kind of my way of like immortalizing what we were trying to do before. I'm like, we're just kind of the two knuckleheads that are just goofing around. And like, you know, he starts saying some really like weird stuff in his freestyle and I'm just like, oh, yeah, I totally know how to operate this rig. And then, you know, like I have a power, you know, like, I, you know, it's it was it was our way of being like, let's have fun. Let's throw these characters into it. Um, but the the name Koba obviously can't, which I don't even use anymore because I'm sure copyright issues, but definitely stemmed from a very popular um, um, <laughs> uh, movie franchise of apes that somehow have taken over the world um because i again it was me kind of more identifying with like oh i kind of like this gritty you know dark it's it's that's the thing with me though right i am a very light person and um you know just being like for some reason anytime i was playing video games i was i always wanted to be like the dark characters the evil ones the ones with like the black and all that stuff and and i don't know that's just kind of the way that i I don't know maybe it's my own way of balancing it out (laughs) uh yeah i mean it's pretty obvious because greg is like yeah he does hip-hop music and film scores it's like all right guys if anybody even knows a shred of who i am you're very aware that that is that is me um yeah i you know his character was always kind of so that's that's gabriel reed who i actually went to high school with we were in the same graduating class uh we were friends in high school then we hadn't talked for several years but i knew he got into acting and you know, he's got that super deep velvety voice and I was like this is this is the man that I want to come in and do it uh, so it was it was actually a lot of fun um, but yeah I mean writing him out and especially just kind of his whole dialogue of of what it's like growing up in a very white suburb when you are a person of color um, is is it, you have a different view on things a very different view on things yeah. um, you know without getting too much into my family history, my parents immigrated to the States. My dad's from El Salvador. Mom is from Nicaragua. They both moved here when they were... My, my mom was like two or three. My dad was like 12. Um, moved to San Francisco. You know, they met each other there, got married, and like a lot of my family members, moved out to the suburbs because they wanted to move away from the city. And, you know, there you have it. Uh, and I kind of grew up in two different worlds because in, in the home life, you know, we are American, but very culturally still you know, grounded in our roots. My grandma lived with us and, you know, um, uh, we had parties like once a month with our family and it was always salsa music and dancing and drinking and good food. And, and it was just, that's just what we did all the time. It was just, it's part of our culture. Um, and so I was very comfortable with that. And then I would go to friends' birthday parties and they were very different. <laughs> they were very not like that. They were very, very different and not in a bad way at all. But it was the only way it was the only time I really kind of saw that difference. Um, you know, and then you get older and you kind of see like, you know, the environments that you're in. And it really wasn't until after I graduated high school and went to college and would come back home to visit that I really saw how different my upbringing was than a lot of people. Because you move to a place like Los Angeles and it has everybody here. 
and I was like, oh my God, I didn't even know these languages existed because I was only used to hearing mm-hmm. English, primarily English, a little bit of Spanish in my hometown, but mostly just English. Um, and and it was me kind of like processing all these different little experiences I had, whether it's from my teachers or for my classmates or colleagues when I was growing up, all these different little experiences that I never really put into words until I voiced it through Alec in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and so a part of that was kind of my platform to just talk about it. And especially him talking to Marcus, Marcus is like, I never would have thought about that. I never would have thought that you would have been stereotyped or I never would have thought about not going, you know, being stereotyped in certain places, you know, like, and Alex like, of course, why would you like, you don't, that's not a reality that you've necessarily had to, had to live in. Um, so it, it was, it was my way of kind of, uh, I wouldn't even say venting. I just think kind of talking about it. Um, but it, you know, also I really did want to get into hip hop and being a hip hop producer in addition to doing film music. And, um, you know, so I was like, okay, well I'll throw all these in. And then eventually I was just kind of writing the way similarly to the way that I talk. And I was like, well, let's just, if, if I'm going to be so narcissistic in this and put pretty much me in it, I'm going to just make, I'm just so damn cool. <laughs> Like, why not why not let's just have him be mr cool guy who's friends with everybody because sure. i was i was also even in high school i i really i just was kind of friends with everybody i just you know i i had uh, and even still to this day i'm not somebody who's ever color like, me unsurprised <laughs> i've never been somebody who just um likes to just stick with one group of people or a little click i've always had just so much more fun and interest in just getting to know a bunch of different people so um yeah, that was kind of uh, that was kind of where his whole character came from. But it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. There's, there's definitely a lot of there's more stuff that we're going to expand on him. He's he's not as he's not as cool of a guy as everybody thinks he is. Um, there's there's a mm-hmm. lot of kind of darkness and and mischievous stuff that he's been up to that we haven't quite had the time to delve into. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll find out more in season two. Correct. I'd like to hear about the small town attitude, like whether of Benicia or Southampton or wherever. Like, and my question is, how do they perceive big towns or cities like San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley? How do they process trauma when when mm-hmm. children die? And how do they gossip? Um, well... It's a very, very good question. Um, obviously, when I was growing up there, it was a little less. I wasn't quite as informed of local politics or deaths or or or, or things that had happened. Um, just too busy being a very, very kid and just doing the kid thing. Um, there are parts of there. there I think for the most part, the, the the community is pretty strong. I think there definitely is still kind of a classist way that things are done. You can definitely tell there are some people who, mm-hmm. um, I mean, you'll find that in any town, right? You really, really will. But um, I think as much as any suburban town, you know, totes itself on acceptance, it, it kind of is its own class above everything else. Um, it's just funny because I've just been rewatching Desperate Housewives because it's a great show. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so funny. Um, I mean, some of these things that I'm talking about, and I'd rather not reveal exactly which ones are true or not, just out of respect for what had or had not happened in town, um, mm-hmm. were actual real scandals. And um, from what I can recall to remember, weren't always... Um, talked about like i think what what when you grow up in the suburbs and then you move outside of the suburbs it's very apparent how much image means everything um it means more than it does i think anywhere else whether it's the parks being a certain you know trim or or just you know uh, the the fear of anything disruptive happening in town that's even remotely out of the norm. I mean, one personal experience for me, and I'm just saying this, this, this happened twice and it was only, um, you know, two specific police officers. Um, and, uh, I have friends who are in law enforcement. I have nothing but respect for them, but this is when I realized kind of the nature of my town. I said earlier when I came home after college, that's when I noticed that I had a different upbringing and here's why. Cause 
Panish is also known for, you know, kind of getting quiet and shutting down around 8 or 9 p.m. It's a pretty quiet, quaint town. Um, and, you know, like cops are pretty much always there and they're around to keep the place safe, which is beautiful and great. Uh, but there were two separate times that I got pulled over uh, when I was driving home late at night from college. Uh, and one of them, I was driving my mom's like SUV, her big Toyota 4Runner SUV back in like 20, you know, not, like 2010 or 2011 or something. And um, I, I remember I was driving one way and a cop saw me and he turned around and pulled me over. And I was thinking, what is going on? It was like nine o'clock at night and he shines a light right in my face and roll down the window and and uh, he goes, how are you doing? <laughs> like, I just gotten back up from the bit from uh, uh, L.A. I was like, I'm just heading home, officer. And he goes, how much have you had to drink tonight? Like, that was his oh first God. question. Yep. Sure. Nothing. Just That's said how like much right out the box. Yep. How much have you had to drink tonight? And I said, none, officer. I'm literally just driving home. He goes, so you live here. You're from around here. And I said, well, I live in Los Angeles, but I am visiting home because this is where I grew up and I show him my ID my ID and at that time my ID was still um, or as I was still in college my ID still had my parents address on it because I hadn't changed it yet and Mm -hmm. uh, once he saw that he was like okay well you were just driving a little crazy out there so just try to try to slow down said you okay weren't driving crazy you were driving brown exactly it's exactly what it was that's a thousand percent what uh-huh. it was so there was that moment and then the other time was probably four months after that i came home and a cop was following me literally all the way into our court or you know that i lived in and i parked and he pulls me over right there he goes uh hey how you doing he's younger younger man i said i'm fine man i'm just trying to go home he goes well, where do you live and i'm literally i was like parked i was like you pulled me over right in front of my parents house this is where i'm going and i showed him my id and he looked at me again he goes okay well we've just heard of reports of break-ins in the neighborhood and somebody described a blue suv so we're just checking all that and i'm like no you didn't you're just doing this mm-hmm. because <laughs> you saw i did not have a white skin color and that's what happened mm-hmm. so it really wasn't until those moments that i and again these are these are moments but it kind of gave me flashbacks of so many different situations when I was a kid that it was very apparent and known and shown to me that I was different and um, literally just because of the color of my skin. And while I was fortunate enough yeah. to not have had any aggressive uh, um, or physical altercations on race or anything like that happened to me, you know, there were definitely a lot of stereotypes and a lot of the way that people have looked at me and stuff that I just, I just, man, the familiarity all came kind of flooding back. Um but as, as far as what your question was originally, I can't speak for the town as a whole. I just know growing up, I grew up thinking it was this perfect little haven of a town and nothing bad happened, but it's literally because nobody talks about it. I went back to my high school a couple months ago and I was, and I was doing a talk on working in film music. It was like career day type of thing and workshop and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I, I later I was talking to some parents of the high school students because it was kind of open to everybody. And they were telling me of a lot of kind of Benicia's history and a lot of this, the scandalous stuff that's been happening and has been happening, has been happening for years. Um, that's very, 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 very interesting stuff. Um, but a lot of it had been linked to, yeah, like, well, and I was asking, I was like, why don't anybody know about that? Like, well, of course not, because that'll disrupt the image of what this little distant snow globe of a town close enough to San Francisco, but really its own identity is. And we're surrounded by a couple of other cities, you know, that are, that kind of bleed into each other. So over the bridge, there's Martinez and Concord and Pacheco and, you know, all these other towns that all kind of like run into each other. And then next to us is Vallejo, you know, which is, uh, it's kind of mixed. It's, it's not always the safest of places, but it also has some really nice, nice spots there and stuff. And, you know, it, it just, it, unfortunately it gets more of a bad rap because, you know, you look right next door to Benicia, it's like the other side of the tracks where it's all nice and pretty and pristine. And, you know, there's just, there's just a lot of fear, I think that's spread and in Benicia for the unknown. And it's, it's really kind of unfortunate. It's one of those things you don't always see until you move out and away from it. Um, so again, all that to be said, I still love Benicia. I love my hometown. I love going back home and visiting people and, and just kind of experiencing things there. But, um, it, it has become apparent to me in the last several years, like, wow, I, I really did have a different upbringing 
than a handful of us did than a lot of our friends, a lot of our white friends. Um, and even though nobody really, you know, like I said, in high school, like I, I was never picked on, I was never bullied, I never had any of those things uh, happen to me, um, you know, and, and certainly not on, on racial things. It was just interesting seeing different, the, the way that things are treated um, and the way that kind of like, people are when you're outside of it and you live in a world like I do in like a big city like Los Angeles or people in New York or DC or wherever where it's just everybody and that's when you kind of have the realization that you grew up in this little incubator type of thing you know yeah thank you yeah okay Raul I have one last question for you and it is this sure what is a dirty secret that people don't understand about film scores like about scoring for film, I should say. Like, what have you discovered are some of the differences between designing music for... Oh, no, this is a separate question. Sorry. Okay. Let me ask it again for cleanliness. Right. What's a dirty secret that people don't understand about scoring for film? <sighs> um, say there's a movie two hours in length, maybe two and a half. There's about 90 minutes worth of music in the score in the movie. And the soundtrack maybe has 45, 50 minutes worth of music in the movie. That's probably like a tenth of what actually goes into making the score. Um, there is so much music written and constantly written for these scores that are changing by the second. Um, and it goes beyond the control of the composer. It goes to the directors. It goes to the producers. It goes to test audiences. I mean, it is constantly evolving and everything that I can speak for what I do at my studio and what other studios do as well as we experiment it's all experimenting every single day it's a laboratory you're just experimenting there's so there's so many times where we're I'm personally am making hundreds of instruments just for half of them to be used and only a small handful of them to be used in the final product of the score because of the way that things get cut and edited and shipped around um, but there there is there's a there's a solid team in every single composer camp. I mean, literally, that nobody knows about. I mean, my job is something that people didn't even realize. I didn't even know it existed before I started doing <laughs> it. You know, yeah. um, and it's it's a lot of work. It, it's it's we're all kind of helping in a way to give the composer the tools they need to carve out whatever sculpture they're going to make. You know, um, we already talk about the painting metaphor, you know, or even my job too. It's like Hans, Hans is the dragon slayer and I'm his soundsmith. So he tells me what, mm -hmm. what to forge. <laughs> I'll make it for him. And then he'll, you know, he'll go in and make adjustments at, at the end of the day. It's up to him. To, it's up to him to slay the, the beast or the dragon. Um, but I have to make sure that everything is kind of in order and clean and as as well as it could be just so that they can then go on and mix it and kind of play around with it. Um, we definitely don't see the light of day often because we are very, very kind of hunkered down on crazy schedules because we're, we're we, when you come in at the end, post-production and think about it this way, unless a director is very familiar with music or as a musician themselves or a composer themselves, handing off your project to a composer is probably the scariest thing in the entire world. Because up until this point, the director pretty much knows how to do everything. The director knows acting. The director knows what they like visually. They know what they like um, lighting and with wardrobe and set and all that stuff. There's so many things they can confidently say yes or no, or let's change this, or this is how we can adjust this. Music is a whole other language. And it can be very, very scary understandably for a director um even for me when i had my composers come in and write for the finale and i am a composer and i set it up as easy as i could so that we can have an open dialogue and while fabio and and steven and kara and austin everybody did an amazing 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 job it still was a moment for me i was like man i was the one who created this whole thing i'm giving this off to them and their music can literally make or break it i mean it it dictates so much um the best scores are the ones that go unnoticed in a weird way you know they're so powerful and engaging in the right moments when you're watching the film but they also stand alone as this unique you know identity um 
even just again my job uh, my job alone of creating these custom sounds to it i mean i think my i think honestly david this may sound like a couple but my job is kind of a secret my job is kind of the dirty secret sure. of film music you know um because it's just something people don't always think about you don't always think about it. you just think about the the music but you don't think about what goes into making those music and part of what i do and what our engineers do um it's just it's all it all funnels into giving the composer the tools that they need to create whatever story it is they're trying to tell um so it's it's really just the fact that what you're hearing is such a small percentage of what actually went into the final product there are so many suites written so many different ideas so many different themes and things change i mean composers are the most adaptable they have to be because we're slaves to the picture in some ways you know and um and a five second scene change or edit or or removal of a scene and we get it we have to adjust to that um for for Dunkirk, we treated the whole thing was supposed to be treated as one bit of music because you hear from the beginning all the way until <laughs> he falls asleep on the train. That's one cue that's playing the entire time. I mean, it really, really is. Um, so think about that as when it comes to editing and picturing. I mean, it's really, really kind of cool stuff. And I mean, nothing's done that way. We usually do reels, right? We'll have several reels and you put music here, put music there. Um, but in this particular case, it was it was a blend of sound design and music and those those are probably the the secrets I can reveal without <laughs> putting my job in jeopardy. Uh, well, but thank all you that, for, for yeah. giving us this peek inside the dream factory, Raul. That was really cool. Absolutely, thank you, thank you so much for reaching out and asking. This is such an honor to to be on your show, David. I'm really glad we found it. Is it. Our I can't believe we've known each other for. I feel like we've known each other for years, and this is our first time we actually really beyond at. Uh, I guess I guess it was at PodCon last year. Yeah, I think, um, I think we shook hands at PodCon for the first. Yeah. Time. Yeah, um, I'm glad we're finally chatting. This has been a lot of fun, man. Yeah, what a pleasure to get to know you better. You too. Come on back anytime. Thank you, David. You can support Rose Drive as they gear up for their second season by visiting their Patreon. It's patreon.com slash rose drive. So y'all know what hibernating is, but did you know that it has a seasonal opposite? It's called estivating, when you spend a period of warm weather in dormancy. Mostly snails are the creatures that do this, but you know what? We are going to join them. We are going to join the snails, so help us in our estivation and join us for all of our planned live streams and goofs over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. And stay tuned for next week when we have one last very special super secret show before we go on break for real, inspired by our beloved patron, Leslie. Leslie, thank you. And now, here it is, your moment of will. Hello, listener. Um, I was going to say something about things, but then David talked about snails, and I just want to say I love snails a lot, and I think they are nice. They have a little house, and they live there, and they are soft and squishy, and I like them, and I like their funny faces, and their longy eyes, and I like their pretty shells, and I think snails are good, and I think that they're sweet. And I just wanted to say that because I know that they're a divisive little creature, um, but I think that they are nice. And I like a snail. That's my stance. Will Snail 2020. That's right, I'm taking over now. It's, it's me. It's my turn. Me and the snails um, in office. And our stance is be nice. Um, and snails are good. And free healthcare. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Listener, this is the last moment of Will for the season. And uh, I just want to say that I really appreciate all of you. I have been working in the podcast industry for a while now. And it's difficult to get people to care about fiction sometimes, which breaks my heart. And I'm sure it breaks yours too. And that's why I'm so grateful for you. For 13 years, some of you consistently, some of you are new, some of some of you, this is your first episode. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you're here. You are here and you care about these works that people put so much love and care and time and energy and attention and themselves into and hopefully see some of that reflected back at you. Um, and I just think that that is really 
wonderful. And I am so grateful for the care that you give by listening to our show here, which I'm very, very proud of and very honored to be a part of. So I'm going to end this moment of will like I ended them when I first started doing them, which is to say, hey, listener, I love you. Thank you, Will. It is time for the traditional end of episode gong, followed by the sound of a great big snail clambering up into the stars and pulling the cloak of night over itself. Followed by the sound of a great big snail clambering up into the stars and pulling the cloak of night over itself to take a nice long nap. The ringing of that gong and the napping of the great snail tell me it's time for the credits. This podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., which is the unceded territory of the Piscataway Indian Nation, the Piscataway Kanoi Tribe, the Pamunkey people, and the Nanticoke people. If you live in the Americas, Australia, or New Zealand, you can learn more about the native, First Nations, or indigenous heritage of your area by visiting whose.land. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Ann Baird. Our submissions editors are Elena Fernandez-Collins and Rashika Rao. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalge. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. Stay safe out there. <laughs>